1 John chapter 3, verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And Father, we do thank you for this text. We ask, Lord, for your help now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So about 30 years ago, I was a seven or eight-year-old boy. I lived in Lake Tahoe. It was one of the it was a time of extreme difficulty, but there were seasons of joy. And, and every eight-year-old boy kind of outside on his bike has a great time. We lived in this apartment complex where there was a driveway that, that went down with all of the parking spots on one side. On the right, there was a carport. Um, the two buildings basically had a walkway uh, on the far end of them where another building was. And one of the things that we used to love to do as young boys of all of varying ages, I'd say between five and 12, we would have drag races on our BMX bicycles. It was a great time. My competitive streak started at a very early age. I didn't win a lot of the races and I always thought it was because I didn't have a, a better bike. And so one of my friends, I don't remember who he was. I remember his bike more than anything because one of my biggest scars that I have on my body came from this day he said you're free to ride my bike and you can race on it and i thought this is going to be great and i noticed that the handlebars the grips you know they the ends had been so worn so that they they came in a little bit so the steel of the bar was on the edge and so there i was i forget who i was i had the left side of the track and i was we were heading towards the building at the end, we would race as far as we could go. We'd slam on our brakes and we'd power skid around. And so I take off on the race. And as I'm going, the friend who'd loaned me his bike, the last thing he, he yelled out to me was, oh, by the way, my brakes skip sometimes. And I have no idea the, the mechanics of what causes a brake to skip. This was not the hand brakes. This was the foot pedal. And when a brake skips, that means you go to apply the brake and it's nothing happens. And so I'm going, okay, great. I'm still going to win this thing. And so I was going as fast as I could, hoping that the brakes would work when I came to the end. As I came to the end, the brakes were not working. So my only hope was to make this sharp left turn and to try to shoot between the two buildings, hopefully to make the walkway. Well, I did not make my goal. And as I made that turn, I went right through the front door of an apartment the door crashed wide open at this point post-traumatic stress sort of kicks in the details aren't there i do remember that there was a terranium um on the the part that the doors crashed into and that a turtle had a, a rude awakening by me the owner of the place was sitting on his couch walking the Lakers game because he had a few choice words for me about how I'd missed the Lakers game or how I'd ruined the Lakers game. And so I basically did what every kid would do is I grabbed the bike and I took off running. I realized that I had this at the, my leg now, the scar is about that big right here. And, uh, but at the time, that was like half my leg. It was a major combat wound. But I couldn't tell my mom for fear that I would get in trouble for what I had done. So I, I, I attempted first aid on my own. And the reason I tell this story is because today's subject is the conscience. And the conscience very much is like breaks that skip. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. And it can be a very difficult thing. If you've been paying attention through First John, as as we've been going through this study, I don't know about you, but I certainly have been getting convicted 
the the standard is to love like Jesus loved. Well, man, do I do I love anywhere close to how Jesus loved? Do I obey His commands by the standards that He set? And I and I realize that I have a very sensitive sensitive conscience. I am not going to make you raise your hands, but I am a person that my conscience is so sensitive and it is so gripping. That if my conscience begins to convict me, I almost can't do anything else until I resolve whatever my conscience is condemning me of. And we'll see in this text that there's sort of this this courtroom scene. We're the defendant. Our conscience is testifying against us. And God is the judge. And John, in this case, is dealing with the conscience in a, in a negative sense, that it's, it's, it's something that's bad, it's, it's not reliable. If it's condemning you, you need to go to God to dismiss it. If it's not there, have assurance in God. And he doesn't deal with the good side of, of, of the conscience. And John recognizes that as he's going through, that our, our consciences might be pricking us with the things that he's written up to this point. And so he's, he's going to assure us how to deal with our conscience. When we begin in verse 19, we read, we will know by this that we are of the truth. So this, this, what is the this that he's referring to? And as you look at the text you begin to, to move forward and you think, well, is he is is the this the things that are coming? If you study and you look at the context, it seems to be that the this is the previous two verses in verse 18, where we left at. John had written little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. He says, as you love, don't just use words. Actually, tangibly, tangibly express love to one another. Uh, let your actions demonstrate your love. And as you're obedient to him and as you love one another, by doing this, we will know that we are of the truth, which is so much of an important theme throughout, throughout the gospel of John and throughout all of his letters. And when we see truth, well, what is truth? It's in John 14, 6 that we read Jesus at the Lord's Supper saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we want to be a part of him. John 15 talks about the branch being grafted in, that we want to abide in him. And so John, as he's going through, listen, if, if we're loving in word and truth, we can know by that it can affirm our hearts that we are a part of the truth. And then in verses from here to verse 21, you'll see the word heart four times. He says, and we'll assure our heart before him and whatever our heart condemns us for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence. We have confidence before God. In the Old Testament, the word heart is often used for, for conscience, this place of conviction that we have. It's very rarely does the heart in the Old Testament actually refer to the muscle that's pumping to move blood throughout your body. In the New Testament, the word that's mostly used is conscience. John here seems to use heart, an Old Testament word, dealing with conscience. And, he, and we see this, that as by this, we will know this, that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. So you get this picture that our that their hearts or their consciences are, are condemning them for their lack of doing something or not doing something correctly. And he says that we can have our hearts assured before God. I do want to take a little time out, a little sidebar, because I think that the conscience is such an important thing for Christians to kind of to deal with. And maybe it's me because I have a sensitive conscience. Um, but the conscience is, is, is a fascinating thing. Have you guys all dealt with a conscience? Our conscience is like this attorney. It's either, it's either condemning us and it can be correct or incorrect in its condemnation. It could be accurate or it could be inaccurate. It can also 
give us assurance. It could be our, our, our defending attorney and it can defend us incorrectly or it can defend us correctly. And so that makes it super difficult to sort of handle when we're being convicted by, by our conscience. It could be of God or it could not be of God. We could have peace about something and that could be of God or it could be just that we haven't trained our consciences according to the scriptures so that we don't feel guilty about stuff that we should feel guilty about. Some areas that deal with the conscience in the New Testament, I want to look at the first one. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter two. Paul here, as he's building his case, mentions the conscience. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, well, we'll back up to verse 12 to kind of get the context. So Romans chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For It is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves. Paul's beginning his case that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as he begins to transition from the Jewish people who had the law, he goes to the Gentiles and say, well, they didn't have the law. But even in their absence of the law, they somehow seem to understand the law from within their hearts. Verse 14. um, For when the Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness And their thoughts alternatively accusing or defending them. On the day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And so as Paul brings up the conscience, he's dealing with the Jewish people and the Gentiles who don't have the law. And in speaking of the Gentiles, he says, even though they didn't have the law, it was that the, the law was written on their hearts and their conscience can either defend them. Or can condemn them. And, and this is sort of how our consciences work. Can we get an amen here? This is, this is most of the time it's condemning us. Is how, that's because if you're not being condemned by your conscience, you don't really think about it. But, and maybe this is me. But when I'm being condemned by my conscience, it's like, ah, oh, I just can't stop thinking about this, mulling over what I'd said or how I handled this. Ah, oh, I wish I could only go back to basically remove This burden that my conscience is condemning or accusing me for. As we move over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul continues dealing with the conscience. In 1 Corinthians 8, verses 7 through 13, it's sort of a a, a long stretch here. But Paul's going to show that the conscience is not always necessarily reliable. That our consciences can be defiled. So that they're no longer accurate in their accusation towards us. In verse 7 he says, however, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. There was food. The Gentiles, it was just that it was food, it was sacrificed or not really a big deal. To some, this meat that was offered to an idol, even though there's, there's no such things as idols, they say, hey, man, you're getting meat at a discount. Just eat it. But he's saying that some, their consciences are so bothered that they didn't want to eat this meat if it had been offered to this idol, that they didn't want to touch it. Their conscience would bug them, even though there wasn't necessarily biblical grounds or foundations for why they were bothered. But, the food, but food will not... Commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat or the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you 
who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For though your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sitting against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And so as we see this defiling of the conscience, this conscience that can be skewed from God's truth all through the scriptures when dealing with the conscience and handling somebody's conscience, even if it's not accurate, is to handle that very sensitively. That a person, if I'm really convicted about something, um, whatever it is, but the Bible doesn't necessarily validate or confirm this conviction of mine, the Bible says be very sensitive to this guy's conscience because you don't want to go against somebody's conscience because ultimately it can prove problematic. That you want a person to learn to listen to their conscience. And so if they're having a difficult time, be sensitive to them. Help them to kind of navigate the ground. Maybe show them from scripture, go through things with them so that their conscience can be sort of uh, trained to align with scripture. The reason that we don't want to go against our conscience, Paul explains in 1 Timothy Chapter 4. If you turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4, continue working towards the back. If you hit Thessalonians, keep going. One more book. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And so we see Corinthians that Paul, the, the person who has this, this conscience that's really sensitive, he says, I, you know what? If it bothers somebody about eating meat, either way, I would rather just not eat meat so that their conscience isn't troubled by it. And I think that in 1 Timothy chapter 4 is the reason that he's so sensitive. If we start in verse 1, it says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared that's the word highlight it circle it seared in their own conscience as with the branding iron now i don't know about what i don't know what you think about when you hear the word seared but what i think of is steak you get the grill nice and hot and then you you basically throw the slab of meat there and you hear the and the smoke goes up but what it's doing it's almost like cauterization is another form of searing when i was a kid i used to get bloody noses all the time and i went to the doctor and after the doctor started looking at me he said well we're gonna have to to cauterize your nose and then as a as a 12 year old kid that did not sound it was far less traumatic than i had in my mind of what he was going to do but they basically took the spot that the blood was and they put a little bit of some sort of acid or something to basically to, to sear it so that it wouldn't blear, that it would kill the nerve endings and it would stop blood from coming out. And Paul says that there are people in their, their consciences have been seared. And, and that's a bad thing. That's why that Paul's so sensitive in handling the conscience because the last thing he wants us to do is, is to sear it so that we're no longer affected by it. Your conscience says, don't cross that line. Even if that line's wrong, but you go across it, you get, you eventually deaden the nerve endings of your conscience. So crossing that line, that's no big deal. Then you get another line. Well, that's, that's no big deal. And you cross over that line. And then before you know it, you're totally dead to, to when your conscience is correct. And so the idea is that we want to, to kind of, be cautious with our consciences. We want to then take our consciences and submit them to the things of God so that God can, can help align them with his word. And this is the last thing we look at if we turn over to Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10. Yeah, let's talk about searing consciences. I, we had a little emergency in our house last night. 
a crayon went through the dryer with a bunch of clothes in it, which is never good. And in my immediate response of trying to handle it, I used acetone to clean out the thing. And, and I feel like I inhaled too many fumes, but hopefully, hopefully it's only temporary damage and not lasting. And hopefully the fog will end, but I'm like, oh man, I hope I didn't sear my brain, all this talk of searing the conscience. But as we look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, let us go back to verse 19. And it says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. Oh, it's a beautiful picture of the, the heart and conscience. These two words sort of co-mingled, that inner voice that speaks to us. We have this defiled conscience, but now that you're in Christ, let the blood of Calvary wash you white as snow. Let your conscience be realigned to the things of God. You guys can turn over to first John chapter three. So as we look at the conscience that it that, that it's it's an attorney either condemning us or assuring us it can be right or wrong in how it treats us. If we violate our conscience, we know that we can sear it. We also know from the word of God that we can take a bad conscience and help it to be aligned and purified according to God's desires, which the Bible wants us to do. And as you walk with Christ, you'll see things that that maybe used to bother you that no longer bother you. There could be things that you, you, you weren't troubled by, but now you're deeply troubled by because of your conscience is aligning with God's standard. And John understands this as the dear pastor, the elder of the church, this, this very uh, senior man as far as the church was concerned. He's the only living guy who walked with Jesus, who talked with him, who, who studied his ways. Jesus had been ascended into heaven for some 60 years, and now John remains. It's this last link to the eyewitness account of who Jesus is. And he's been sharing with us the things that Jesus shared with him, the things that changed his life and how he viewed. And, and he's so black and white with presenting to us the things of God. And as he says in verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. This is like the last wave of the shore that as I've been reading, it's just like, Man, Lord, am I really walking with you? Am I loving like you want me to love? And I'm becoming deeply troubled. There's times I read the scriptures and I start thinking, am I even a Christian? Like I got so much stuff in me and I have such a long way to go. Maybe I'm not even in him. And I think that John hears our voices and he hears this condemnation that we might be feeling of our hearts. And in this passage, I don't see him dealing with the positive side of the conscience. He's only dealing with the conscience in a negative sense. He says, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And he says, listen, as we're going through this ride of our hearts condemning us, as we're feeling guilty for our inadequacies, don't let your heart condemn you because our hope is in God. And as I read this, commentators sort of take two tracks in disagreement with one another. And this passage in the Greek is terribly difficult. That, that almost every commentator says it's hard to wrestle. We don't even know in the English if we're putting the punctuation in the right spot. Because the Greek doesn't have punctuation. It just is. And so they think, well, maybe this is a comma here. And some say, no, I think that's a period there. And then if you put a, a difference between a comma and a period is can radically change the meaning of the text. And so some would say that John, and I kind of tend to agree with them. John is trying to 
assure us. There are times when doing the right thing makes you terribly guilty. You feel horrible. If you have to discipline a child or tell somebody that they were wrong about something or doing the morally the right thing before God, man, I don't know if you guys have ever been involved in this, but I feel horrible inside. But I know before God I did the right thing, but my heart condemns me over and over. Like I can barely sleep at night. And so when I read this on some sense, there's comfort saying God's greater than your conscience. And you're doing the right thing. It sort of reminds me of a passage that's so misinterpreted in our culture. In Matthew 18, 20, we hear it all the time. Where two or three are gathered, I'm there in your midst. And we use this at prayer meetings. And my question, well, well, if there's only me, does that mean that God's not with me? That I need two or three people then to initiate intimacy in, in prayer with God? But if you look at the context of that great passage of Jesus where he says, I tell you the truth, where two or three of you are gathered, I'm there in your midst. If you go before it, it deals all with confronting somebody over a sin that you go to the person by yourself. That if they don't respond, then a little bit time later, you take two or three, you go with them. Then you you confront them there. If that doesn't work, then finally you, you bring it before the greater body of the church. And then after saying this sort of order of how to do discipline, I've only had to do church discipline like not even a handful of times. But it's one of the most horrible things to do that in love to confront somebody for sin, you're riddled with who am I to like bring this? Like I know my things. But then the Bible says to make it clear that if a brother's in sin, we have an obligation before God out of love to to help confront them on their sin so that they can grow. And when you do this, your conscience can terribly bug you, even though after prayer and talking and trying to feel like that you're you believe that you're doing the right thing. It's still terribly difficult. And I believe that's why Jesus says when two of you or two or three of you come together I'm there in your midst to, to affirm you. Following that passage, when Peter says, well, how many times do I got to forgive somebody? And Jesus says, 70 times seven, you continue to forgive. You're working towards reconciliation. And it's this beautiful picture of, of Jesus saying, listen, when you have to do this thing that requires great integrity and love, and with it comes a, 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 a possibly a conscience that feels horrible about doing it. He says, I'll affirm you. I will be there in your midst to, uh, to give you peace. And here, if our heart condemns us for God is greater than our hearts. Our salvation is not built upon our works. Our salvation is totally contingent on our belief in Christ. Now, others would go to the other extreme and looking at this passage saying God is greater. They would say that if you're feeling your conscience, your heart is troubling you over a certain issue and you're condemning yourself over this issue. If you being human in your sinfulness know enough that you're condemned for what you did, think how much greater and more holy God is and greater is he to bring condemnation on you. Ah! These are two extreme sort of positions. And the, the validation for that view would kind of Paul in first Corinthians chapter four, verse three through five. I'll read it to you. You don't have to you don't have to, to go there if you don't want to. But Paul says, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. He says, listen, I don't care about being examined by you. I'm not even worried about my own conscience or my own consciousness because in my own consciousness, I think I'm not guilty of anything. But just because I tell myself that I'm not guilty of anything doesn't mean I've been acquitted. I could have the clearest conscience yet stand condemned before God. Paul had a very high view of God's holiness. But the one who examines me is the Lord. 
Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring light to the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. And so I look at this. Okay, God's greater than our hearts, which are condemning us. How do we, how do we handle this? Do we, do we choose one or the other? Is one right, one wrong? When I come to these situations, I go, is it possible that both could be right? And in this case, I do think that both can be right because our consciences are as reliable as my brakes that skip on that bike back in 1983 or 82. Your conscience could be right. Your conscience could be condemning you correctly. In that case, it's the second option. Or your conscience could be riddling you with guilt, but it's off. And he say, no, God's greater than your conscience. And he's, you're, you're free and clear of this guilt. So how do we handle this gnawing conscience? This is sort of the so what. that I, the, how, how do we deal with our consciences? I think the first thing is that we handle them very carefully. If somebody comes to you about a conscious thing, be very gentle in how you deal with them. Halloween just passed. I'll never forget back in Bible college. Some, I think it was like 10, 11 years ago. Class fell on Halloween and there we were at Shadow Mountain. And there was like a party in the parking lot, you know, what churches do, the harvest festival. And there was a girl as I walked into class and she was literally like crying and shaking and I was, I was a Navy SEAL at this point. I was not a pastor. I was just studying. And so it's like, oh, man, there's a girl that's crying in the room. It's just me. Like, did, maybe she didn't see me. And I'm just going to try to, like, get out of here. I don't want to deal with this. And, and I'm like, I finally was like, are you okay? And she's like, you know what? I thought this place taught the word of God. I'm like, it does? Have you been doing your homework? Like, do you re- oops, sorry about that. Good thing nobody in front row, the last bit came out there. Um, but I'm like, have you seen the, the workload? Like, I've been in the Bible like 12 hours. And, and I'm like, what, why are you saying this? And she's like, walking here, they're having this big, they're having this big Halloween party. And I was raised, um, I, I forget what it was, Wiccan or what, like whatever it was, like where she was, she was like, I was a witch. My, I came from a long line of witches. And at this point, I'm looking at her like, are you crazy? Like, I've never been, I've never met a witch. Like, a, like I mean, and so she's talking to me, crying, speaking of this witchcraft. And she's like, the evil that happens on Halloween. And I'm like, but that's not what's happening there. And thankfully, another guy walked in that was more, had more pastorly experience. And he was able to like, listen, they're teaching the word of God here. And we're like, he was very sensitive. Like if they known what you were going through, you're in a very like minority of, of, of sensitivity with the conscience. Had the school known, they probably wouldn't be doing that out there. And I'm like, and he was very gentle with guiding her to the scriptures and showing her from the scripture, respecting and honoring her conscience so that. The scripture could be the one that frees her from being in the bondage of this guilt. And so we want to be careful so that we don't sear our conscience. I would suggest that when you have a troubled conscience to start with prayer, to begin asking God, Lord, is my conscience accurate? Is, is what I'm feeling guilty about of you? I would also suggest that if you don't feel guilty about something, if you're going into something, that maybe you were raised with no biblical valid, validation, or not validation, but biblical sort of orientation. So you don't even really know that you should be feeling guilty about something. They say, Lord, well, I have peace about this, or I feel really kind of, I'm just not at rest. And would you help me to discern what is right? Uh, we would obviously open the Bible and begin to, to see what does the scripture say about this particular issue? 
I would advise you to have godly counsel that you can go to. People that have been walking with the Lord longer than you. That's why fellowship in a local body is so important. That we maintain relationships with those who have been walking down this road a little bit longer than you. That we develop relationships with people that have been walking with the Lord a little bit less. And you can go to them and say, you know, I'm really feeling guilty. Did I handle this correctly? What do you think? And hopefully they'll open the Bible and show you either where you're guilty or you're, you're wrong. By going to godly counsel, it can, number one, it can clear your conscience. You, you can say, you know what? The Bible says that I have freedom in Christ to do this. And I'm in total bondage because just I feel guilty, but the Bible hasn't condemned me for whatever this action is. Or the second thing is, is by talking with the person, they could say, you know what? The Bible says this. And from this, I could see how you could feel guilty because that seems to go against God's standard. So then in that case, you would be led to confession and repentance, and then you would restore your relationship with God. And looking at the heart of this letter, if we go back to 1 John 1, 3, we see that the whole aim, the reason that he's writing his proclamation is that he desires the reader to have fellowship with them, the apostles, and with God the Father. This word koinonia is a word that's so overused in Christian culture today, and it robs it of the significance. This word was a word that was used to describe the intimacy between a man and a wife, this closeness that no other bond. John wants us to have this close, intimate relationship with the Lord. He's not trying to condemn us away from the Lord. He's trying to draw us closer to the Lord. And as you're feeling maybe convicted because you know that the way you're treating people isn't necessarily loving, that maybe you haven't embraced Christ as you should have, and maybe you haven't, aren't being obedient to his, his instructions, that conviction would lead you to make a change of like, Lord, I confess this, my hope is in you, my, my conscience is troubling me, and I come to this knowing that you're greater than my conscience, and I want to walk with you. Verse 21 He says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And so he's only using conscience as the negative. If your conscience isn't bothering you, that's awesome. You have confidence. This word that he used in 1 John 2, 28, that when he appears, we don't want to shriek away in shame, but have confidence at his appearing. One of the funniest things that happened to me early in my Navy career, I was an E2, a seaman something. I, what's an E2? I know you know. A seaman apprentice. I looked at my military guys. But it's like you're so far on the bottom of the food chain that you're, you're nothing. I was getting ready to go to BUDS, SEAL training. I spent eight months on the East Coast. And all our job was to do was to work out in the morning and to clean in the afternoon. That was my job requirement. I'd finished working out. It was a little bit before lunch, so I was taking a nap down in the gym. And over the speaker, I hear the commanding officer saying, Seaman Apprentice Hansen to my office now. I was like, ah. Like, I wasn't doing anything. Is he mad because I'm napping in the gym or something? Like I, and so I walk up there, standing at attention before this captain, who's a Navy SEAL, who was like, to me, it was like, oh, this guy's like, I, you don't want to know the captain when you're an E2. And he looks at me and he says, can you explain to me why Admiral Tony Less called me asking for Seaman Apprentice Hansen to call him back at his convenience. And I was like, oh, well, that's my dad's buddy from the Naval Academy. I, I think he's retiring. And he's like, why don't you just call him right now? I'm like, yes, sir. And so I, I call and I get to one of the, you know, you don't really get through to the Admiral. You get through to one of his aides. And so his aides are like the same rank as this commanding officer I'm talking to. They said, yes, uh, Admiral Les wants to invite you to his retirement ceremony. The, the festivities will begin at his house and then we'll go on to the ceremony. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, should I come in uniform? And they're like, no, that would probably be a bad idea. Why don't you just get a tie and some dockers and, and come like that? 
And so, and I'm, and he's like, and you can bring a guest. So I brought another E2 buddy, like another, another guy. We went down to the Kmart or whatever and bought our tie and, and our shirt, tried to figure out how to tie him. This is before the internet. And we, we're like walking in as the Admiral's guests. And there were like captains saluting us. And we're like, you know, kind of just acting like we weren't in there, just kind of giggling to ourselves. If they only knew. But we were like so calm. We're Admiral Les's personal entourage. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We went through the whole ceremony with this total confidence. And the confidence had nothing to do with my own achievement. It had to do with this relationship with my dad. And this is my dad's old buddy. And my dad can't make the retirement ceremony. So I'm there kind of with my dad's sort of name. And it was the funniest thing. And this is what he speaks of all through this. That we would have confidence before him. Verse 21. If your heart doesn't condemn you, we have confidence before God. That we can stand before him. It's not our own merit. It's totally because of who we know. That we know Christ. We've accepted his gift. We've been, we've been credited with his righteousness. And then he goes on to say, well, um, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. I'm going to address this, this, this more in full or more more completely, I think, is the proper way to say it in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is not saying that God is this, that we are gods and he's our bellman and whatever we ask, he'll deliver. When I stood at the admiral's house, very uncomfortable, but I had confidence. I, I was with my friend and the admiral. How you doing, sir? How you doing? Oh, just call me Tony. Oh, just call you Tony. Okay, Tony. Uh, how you doing, sir? He's like, well, how are you doing? I hear you're getting ready to go to SEAL training. I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. So what do you do? I'm like, well, I pretty much work out and I scrub toilets in the afternoon. That's my job. This is the guy who like ran the Blue Angels for years. Like, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been pretty exciting scrubbing toilets and, and doing push-ups, you know. And, and he's like, well, anything I can do for you, I'm willing to help you. It's, I, I could have asked for anything. But there's a deep reverence for who this guy is and who I am. And and so, although I could have asked for anything because of this deep reverence and understanding his will, my requests were only in a line with the things that he desired. And, And this isn't some prosperity gospel where name it and claim it. This is, no, we stand before the creator and sustainer of the universe. When you stand in that situation, you begin to realize how much he's actually done for you, how much you have to be thankful for. But I'll save that for later. And then as we come down to verse 23, verses 23 and 24, I think embody the purpose and point of all of the Apostle John's writings. He says, this is the commandment that we believe In the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus' name, Christ the Messiah. John chapter 20, verse 31. The whole reason he wrote the gospel of John, that you might come into a saving relationship with Christ by believing upon him. This is the, the, the cornerstone. This is the linchpin of everything. You do not move on until you get this mastered. You just don't move on. So, so often we try to move on without getting this down. There are so many people, I believe, who claim that they're believers of Christ, but they haven't come to know him. That they haven't believed upon him for salvation. And then they, they, they move on and they're trying to do all of the externals and they build a religion of works. So this is where if you haven't come to believe in Christ as Savior... This is what he's commanded us, that we would believe upon him. And I would suggest that you not even pay attention to me beyond this point. Just stop right there until you come to a place where you can know Christ as Savior. If you try to move on to the second part without the first part, you're going to get in all kinds of trouble. So command one, you believe upon Christ, 
that when he came, he led the perfect life. He died on the cross according to scriptures to make payment for our sins. He is our propitiation for sin. He's our advocate as we read earlier in chapter 2. He paid it all. We sang one of my favorite hymns. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. John says, believe upon him for salvation. Part two, once you've believed upon him and love one another as he commanded us. That's John's message. Simple. It seems so simple. Our problem is an understanding. Our problem is, uh, is living it out and applying. I heard Charles Swindoll say that as we look at the cross, the vertical beam is symbolic of our relationship with God, that we have access to him through Christ. And the horizontal beam is symbolic of our command, his command for us to love one another. This is all the apostle John cared about at the end of his ministry. Little children, love one another, love one another. He goes on to him, goes on in verse 24. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know this, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Man, that sounds like John chapter 15, just like summarized into one verse. We know that we're in him, that you've been transferred from the body of Adam, death, separation from God through the spirit of God, through belief into the body of Christ. As we read Paul's writings, he constantly says in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, you go from death into life through belief. And as we keep his commands, we realize that we abide in him. But he also goes on to say that he and us, that he's abiding in us. And how we know that he abides in us. How do we know by the spirit in which he's given us? Ephesians 1.13 says that after hearing the gospel of your salvation, at that moment when you believed that you were sealed, a permanent sort of action that cannot be undone, that you're sealed in the spirit and we receive the spirit and don't expect me to explain how it all happens. But I know that in Christ, I think differently as I've been walking with him, as his word's been going in. I, man, I feel guilt and shame about stuff that never used to bother me. I often joke about the lie detector test I had to take while applying with the sheriff's department. The lady finally had to stop me and said, you know what? These things you're confessing to me are not illegal. And I'm like, yes, they are, according to God's law. And I feel horrible about it. And she's like, yeah, but that's not what we're looking about it. So like, because I failed like initially. And she's like, what's bothering you? I'm like, man, I was so bad. She's like, none of these things are illegal. I'm like, you're reading the wrong law book. (laughs) They are. And I stand condemned. (laughs) And there's assurance in that. That, that I know that the spirit is walking with me and that he's, he's convicting me in areas. And as I raced that bike down that morning, hoping that the brakes would stop, I realized that sometimes our brakes with our conscience don't work. Sometimes they work. Our consciences can be a very dangerous thing. And I think that this section of John is trying to assure us against a broken conscience. One that is trying to condemn you where you don't stand condemned. Our assurance before God is not based on our actions. It's not based on our actions. We stand complete before him justified because of what Christ did on our behalf. And then as we believe upon him, we can, re- we can receive affirmation of this inward action this receiving the spirit that we've been changed that we've been transformed that there's new life in christ as our actions begin to change i joke with you guys about that i love you guys more than many of my like flesh and blood family members and i say it as a joke but it really is a sad thing that i have family members that aren't in christ and that there's there's this sever because we're on two totally different tracks. And there's a love that I can't explain that I have for fellow believers. That before I was a Christian, I wouldn't want to hang out with half of you guys. Unless you weren't walking with Christ and maybe we would be hanging out. But now there's this like deep sense of love 
And that's fruit that's coming out of this tree of this new life. And as we grow in our understanding, as we read the Bible, we come to understand what God wants from us through his word. We obey him. Guys, I don't want to just play church. Like as I raise my kids, as I walk my life, this isn't a game. This isn't just come to church on Sundays and do your hour to kind of alleviate your conscience for a little bit. This is no. The creator and sustainer of the universe came to earth as a man. He lived a perfect life. And when he went to the cross, he died for me. He paid everything for me. He's my Lord. And I'm not just playing games with him. I'm surrendering my whole life to him. I want to know what he expects of me. I want to obey him. But I'm humbled by his love for me, knowing that when I fall short and I do it all the time, that if I walk with him and I'm transformed by his love for me. Why don't we pray? Father, we pray that you would help each of us, Lord. So many of us have been taught incorrectly about you, Lord. Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, that you would, Lord, show us your great love for us, Lord, that we would not just look at the image of the cross and say, oh, Jesus died for me. But, Lord, that you would help us to understand, to to comprehend as best we can this great love that you have for us. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to walk with you, Lord. We, we, We come to you, Lord, acknowledging that our hearts, our consciences so often bug us. They trouble us. Or they don't do their job and we are able to so stumble into sin over and over again without the warning light coming on. Father, we ask that you would, through your spirit, Lord, that you would help to cleanse and purify our consciences, Lord. That they would align with your word, that we would listen to your voice, Lord. Father, take our consciences, use them. Lord, may we be assured where they condemn us incorrectly. Father, may we turn to you when they condemn us correctly. May we be quick to confess and to repent our sin to you. And Lord, as we gain understanding, Lord, as your your word is um, illuminated before our eyes and we have understanding, we pray, Lord, that it would take root in our heart. Father, that we would understand what it is that you expect from us. And that we, with a cheerful heart, would respond in obedience to you. Father, we're thankful for this relationship that you've made available to us. We long for this koinonia, this intimacy. Father, help us arrange the order of our lives, our affairs, Lord, with you at the very center of all things. We love you and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.